in our culture, you know, we don't really talk about grief and death. And so a lot of people shy away from it, not so much that they don't care, they just don't know what to do. And so the fallback is to do nothing. But really, when people do step up, even imperfectly, and say, you know, I don't know how to help, but I'm here, is so meaningful that I really wanted to do that for other people. You're listening to the Beyond the Obituary podcast from Renaissance Funeral Home in Raleigh, North Carolina. I'm your host, Jason Gillikin. On the past two episodes, we heard from moms who had to go through the toughest thing you can possibly do as a parent, watch your child fight, and then ultimately lose their battle with cancer. If you haven't listened already, go back to hear Sharon Delaney McLeod and Jennifer Presson on how they channeled their energy and grief into doing something so helpful to their communities. The strength that these people show in their grief process is so impressive, but they had help too. They found their people to help them through everything. And that's something I've learned in hosting this podcast that no matter how strong we are, we all need help when a loved one passes on. So on today's show, we talked to someone who helps with that grief process, not just for families, but also for those who are close to death themselves, bereavement coordinator and palliative care chaplain at UNC Hospital's Heidi Gessner. First and foremost, I'm a chaplain. So I work with patients in the hospital at the end of life and their families to help them kind of navigate what it looks like towards the end of life and working through anything in their lives that connect them to meaning and to help them be more peaceful as they die and also their families, helping prepare them, helping them work through it. And then the second part, which actually for me was the first part, it started out as a bereavement coordinator, is I follow up with families who have lost a loved one in the hospital. So at the time of death, give them a packet, and our other chaplains are also trained in this, that have resources and information on after a loved one's died, practical resources about what to do with bank accounts and changing your license and closing things, insurance, and then more emotional and spiritual resources. And then I follow up at six months, which is generally a time when your original grief reactions will resurface, but Mm. people aren't aware of that, Mm -hmm. and they think they're regressing. But actually, it's very normal. And then an anniversary card at a year saying, we're remembering you during this time and we're remembering your loved one. And that's where I get the most response because most of people's friends and family have kind of moved on. And to remember their loved one is just really poignant for them. And also, I would say with the bereavement, it's also for the community And I facilitate grief groups for people who can come together and share their experiences and their loved ones and just kind of look at what it will be like in the world without them. Right. So groups of their own family or groups? No, this is open to anyone in the community who's lost a loved one. Generally, it's actually better if family members don't come to the same group together oh, okay. because they may not want to say something in front of 
the other person that may hurt their feelings or whatever. But generally, we have a group of 10 people from all different walks of life, all different losses, who will share their loved one. And I have different themes each week that we go over to discuss, like going back to work, anniversaries and holidays, dealing with relationships, how they change. Those are some examples. And we kind of either work around that theme or someone can bring up something pressing going on that week. Yeah. And with your job, it says bereavement coordinator and also palliative care chaplain. What does the word palliative mean? So palliative is when a patient has decided to stop aggressive treatment. Okay. So they've decided to go with more about their quality of life versus the quantity. Mm -hmm. So they may want to, for example, have more time playing with their grandkids or kids or animal or go home versus trying another round of chemo, especially if they are in a late stage of a diagnosis and it's not looking good for them to survive. So they decide to take away some of the aggressive meds and have more things that just help them feel better in the moment, mm-hmm. knowing that their life may be shorter. It's also such a rewarding job. Yeah, I connect with people at this very intimate time of their lives when most of their egos have been stripped away. So all of those kind of facades and shields, armor that we put up to protect ourselves are dropped. Mm -hmm. And so you really connect deeply with someone at that time. And that is actually how I got into doing this. Twenty-five years ago this summer, my father was diagnosed with terminal lung cancer. And I was fortunate enough to spend a lot of time with him in the three months that he lived after diagnosis, which was very short. He was a type A businessman when I was growing up, traveled a lot, didn't get to spend a whole lot of what seemed like deep quality time with him. And then when he was sick, you know, he said to me, the only thing on my list, he was a big avid list maker, the only thing on my list is staying alive. Uh Uh-huh. And so I would sit with him when he was getting chemo treatments. My mom had a hard time dealing with it. So I was kind of the surrogate main caregiver. And we would watch TV together and comedies and talk and and actually laugh a lot about funny stories. And one time he had a bad reaction to chemo and he was hallucinating. And it actually ended up being pretty funny afterwards. (laughs) Like he saw the push pins on the bulletin board moving around and communicating to each other. And he was sharing that with me. And I just went with him on it. And we came up with a story. (laughs) And then afterwards, he was like, wow, that was a weird dream. (laughs) So that, you know, we got kind of closer during that time. I remember that's also the time Jackie Onassis was going through cancer treatments. And so he would compare a lot with her treatments because the Kennedys were very formative for my family. But anyway, so we actually got very close. And I realized during that time what a deep, rich time this is for being with others. Mm -hmm. And actually, so much living actually happens during that time. So my dad was also kind of a snob about food. 
and would never have gone to McDonald's or anything. And then I remember towards the end of his life, he could only eat hot dogs. Yeah. So we did a lot of grilling of hot dogs. <laughs> <for> like, <laughs> And it was just so funny that, you know, he's like, here I am eating hot dogs. Whoever would have yeah. thunk it. So just that richness, and then at the very end, he went home with hospice. My whole family, I have three siblings, they came home. He was waiting for my younger brother, I remember, to get home from Texas. And we had a hospice nurse who was just so compassionate and engaging with all of us, Mm -hmm. not just my dad, that I remember thinking, I need to check this organization out, you know, once we get past this dad dying and initial grief. So it was very impactful for me. I had never experienced anything like that. Yeah. It sounds like you have some of the best memories of your dad from you know the time he was diagnosed to, to when he passed. Yeah, some really great memories and, yeah. and actually some really funny ones. And the other thing along those lines is his oncologist was very funny. Uh-huh. I remember thinking... Who would ever think an oncologist has such a great sense of humor? And how does he do this? Yeah. Seeing all these people. But that's actually a way to survive in this profession, you know, is laughing a lot. Right. So, like, did did he have you, – you mentioned there was that oncologist. And, I mean, was there a, a bereavement counselor or anything like that at that time? We did not have a bereavement counselor. We didn't have a chaplain. Yeah. And honestly, Jason, I wouldn't even know what a chaplain was at that time. Right, yeah. It was even just the nurse and the compassion of the physician. And I have to say that a lot of my parents' friends, but it was not necessarily their close friends. Some were, but acquaintances, certain acquaintances really stepped up and cared for my family and me in ways that I wanted to offer for other people. Because in our culture, you know, we don't really talk about grief and death. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of people shy away from it, not so much that they don't care, they just don't know what to do. Right. And so the fallback is to do nothing. But really, when people do step up, even imperfectly, and say, you know, I don't know how to help, but I'm here. Yeah. Is so meaningful that I really wanted to do that for other people. Yeah. I don't know how to help, but I'm here. Right. That's huge right there. And it's real. Yeah, because I mean I I wouldn't know how to help sure. exactly. But, you know, you want to make it known that you're you're there and you're willing to do whatever you can, even if it's nothing really. I mean, even if it's just hanging out. Exactly. Yeah. So how did that affect your grief process? Like, was it, Mm. did it help out your grief grief process? Yeah, I think so. I think one of the reasons I was so close to him is my siblings were all over the country. So proximity-wise, I was in Durham. My parents lived in Charlotte. Mm -hmm. So, you know, and he was treated up here at Duke. So, I mean, I actually just got to see him more. Yeah. I think it did help with my process of grief because... I talked to him about everything I feel like I wanted to talk to him about. And then he wrote us all letters when, I mean, this is really amazing. Instead of taking extra pain medicine to sleep at night, he worked through the pain by writing letters to us and to friends and family members who had been impactful for him. And I even found out he wrote a letter to my college boyfriend. I mean, like 20 years after my dad died, he said, you know, I still have that letter. 
your father gave me in an email exchange, and I didn't even know he had written him. Yeah. But in my letter, it was I t- I read it every anniversary of his death. Mm-hmm. I, you know, I have it in a very sacred place, well, a safe place in my house. I think when I was reading it, it made me realize how much it meant to him too to be together because he mentions you know the hot dogs and asks me to be available to go out for dinner with my mom periodically. And if mm-hmm. she yells at me, just don't worry. It's really oh. – <laughs> I'm stepping in for him. Yeah. And so I don't know. There was a lot of closure there, I felt like. And I also still feel my dad. Were you able to help out your siblings and your mom through the grieving process at that time? I think so. I think that because I was receiving so much support – I could help normalize what was happening for them. But I have to say that I actually had a very transformative experience that also made me know that we were going to be okay. And it sounds a little woo-woo, but it actually has changed my life. And it was one time I was driving to Charlotte to visit my parents towards the end of my dad's life, and I was very distraught and sad and frightened about what would happen when he died because he was kind of the anchor of our family. Mm -hmm. And I felt this very palpable presence in my my blue Honda Civic, I'll never forget, so much so that I actually turned around in my car Uh as if someone were there. I can only say that it was some sort of divine presence that I felt that said to me, you are going to be okay. And I was so distraught. And when I heard that, and I could feel it, I couldn't see anything, but I could feel it. I immediately felt connected to something bigger. And I mean, I'm getting goosebumps right now talking about it because it was, I think, what really led me into the chaplaincy is realizing you know, we live in a universe that talks to us. Mm-hmm. We have, you know, whether you believe it's God, a higher consciousness, the universe, nature, it really awakened me to realize we are living in this loving universe. And I felt that it was grace. You know, I experienced this grace through this time that we are not alone was the message I got. And you're going to be okay. Wow. And so... That is what I was able to give to my family in ways and words that they could understand that we're not alone in this and we're going to be okay. And that is still my message that I try to bring to people is that you're not alone. And I symbolize companioning with them, but it's bigger than, you know, it's bigger than me. We live in this amazing universe that is loving and available to help us at all times. Wow. And it sounds like, you were chosen basically to take this next path. You know, this this happened, you know, I hate to say it, but it, I mean, it seems like it all happened for a reason. And for you, that that was to to help other people. Yes. I think it was really a calling, which sounds a little cliche. But, yeah. you know, after my dad died for years, I resisted it and thought, oh, I just am thinking I want to go to be a chaplain because dad died. It makes me think of him. But it kept getting bigger. And at this point, I had very small children. And I thought, this is ridiculous. I can't go back to school. And finally, it was such a big urge. I said, okay, fine. I'll try it. Uh 
You know, I looked up and said, okay, I'll try it. And then did they have something like chaplain school in the hospitals. And I did one small unit of that for three months and visited with patients and units and had wonderful instruction through a clinical pastoral education through Duke. And um, I said, yeah, this is what I'm supposed to do. So you're, you've been a chaplain at UNC Hospitals for... Since 2002, for 17 years. 17 years. This summer. Wow. Okay. Is there a typical day? Hmm. Well, a typical day would be... First thing we do is kind of a morning huddle, and we hear about all the traumas and deaths overnight, which is pretty intense. can be very intense because we're a level one trauma center. And then I have certain patients I see on a unit. So I'll kind of do those rounds, and often something unexpected will happen that I will get paged to, whether it's a death or a crisis on a unit. And often I'll see somebody from the community who's grieving, who wants to come talk to me about resources or what's happening for them, which is usually they think they're going crazy. Mm. Because they're in this grief, which is what it is, but nobody kind of names it because we're supposed to grieve for like till the funeral and then be done. Right. And then maybe I'll lead a group. Today, I'm going to, when I leave here, I am doing a simulated goals of care conversation in for 100 fourth year medical students. Oh, wow. Fourth year, yeah, at UNC. And they will watch me and an attending and a social worker do kind of a mock goals of care is when someone is nearing the end of life. And and just like it sounds, what's important to you? What goals do we want to work towards? Getting home or... So I'll be doing that after I leave here today. So there's a lot that goes on as a hospital chaplain on a day-to-day basis. And when people are going through this process, my guess was that Heidi has some stories to tell. There are a lot of strange things that happen during this time, and it makes me think of when my father-in-law died many years ago. I was in divinity school at that point. The dean of the divinity school wrote me a note, and he just said, be especially aware of God's presence during this time. And that has always stayed with me, but I know exactly what he means. And, you know, whether you believe in God or a higher power or anything, this time near death and right after death is a very liminal time, which means, you know, it's almost like the person who's grieving has one foot in this world and one foot in the other where their loved one's gone. And the lines between our material world and the next world get very loose And um, some people call it going across the veil. And one woman in my grief group who had lost her husband, and it was her birthday. She was telling us what happened the week before that session. And she was very sad because her husband always wrote her fantastic birthday cards. And here it was her birthday, and he had died, and she was so sad. And she hadn't even touched the mail since he died. All the bills were, like, piled up Mm -hmm. on her desk, which she was, like, kind of embarrassed to admit, but it was true. And her cat climbed up on the table and pushed a pile of the bills and everything off the desk. And when she bent down to get them up, the first thing she saw was a birthday card. 
And it was from her husband, and he had written it when he was sick before he died. Oh, my gosh. For her birthday, knowing how important it was for her. And he wrote this amazing birthday card. Oh. And so she got it on her birthday. That is so sweet. And those are the kind of things that, you know, seem strange and woo-woo, but like happen all the time. Yeah. And I think we just don't talk about it very much in our universe, but it's also really comforting to know, right? It's very hopeful for people right? Um, that it seems like you can still have this relationship with your loved one, which I am an avid proponent of, that you can still communicate after your loved one dies. And I think part of the, the resolution phase of grief, so if you let yourself, after the, the shock and the anger and the numbness, if you really let yourself drop into the grief process and realize it's just really sad. You know, I'm just yeah. very sad. And stay in that, We either through support, grief groups, or whatever it is for you. That is what is referred to as the dark night of the soul. And that's where transformation happens. So that's where you start to realize, I have all this love for this person. And now what can I do in my life to honor this person, to move forward, and what am I available for in helping other people? Because two of the gifts, hard-won gifts of grief, are increased compassion and wisdom. Because we can't go back to who we were before the person died, and we learn a lot. And if we stay open to it, we'll have this compassion and wisdom, and we can think about I have so much love to still give this person. Where can I put this love? And how can I remain in relationship with this person? And some people have told me, you know, it's in their car. While they're driving, they'll talk to their loved one. Mm -hmm. Or through nature, you know, through, for me, it was baby bird feathers. When I started finding baby bird feathers places, when I was thinking of my father, suddenly a baby bird feather would appear. Oh, and I would like start giggling because yeah. it was like, oh, hi, you know, and one other widow said for her, it was like these grief attacks, grief bursts, okay. where she would hear a song or a smell and it would, or the senses are very powerful and it would remind her of her husband and she would, you know, maybe even start crying. But it also made her realize he was so close during that time and she'd almost say, See you next time. Mm. I also facilitate a grief writing group. In one of the sessions, we write a letter to your loved one, telling them whatever it is you want to tell them. And maybe there was something you weren't able to tell them before they died. And you can go ahead and say it there. And what I say is leave space for a response because very often it may not be right then you'll get a response. Yeah. And for me, when I wrote my dad, he said, keep me alive. Wow. Keep me alive in stories. Let me help you with your work. And when you want my help, think of me or think of me in your heart or your head. And he said, wherever you are, that's where I am. What other strategies are there? So, uh, you know, for somebody who's 
you know, maybe not comfortable in talking to the, their loved ones who have passed mm-hmm. on and, you know, have been so ingrained in, in this culture, they're kind of resistant to it, but they need to grieve. I mean, are there other strategies besides writing things down or, or, or talking? If you know, if you're not a grief group person, I would say the one thing about grief is it's in the telling the story of the person and the illness and maybe the death, especially if it's traumatic. It's very important to go over what happened at the end. And there's a lot of isolation and loneliness that can be in grief. And so I would just say, you know, it seems like a very unique thing to be in. It's actually really normal. All of us will go through this grief. And some of the ways people can cope with it is – Using some of that compassion to start new things for people. So maybe for you, planting a rose garden or a rose bush in honor of somebody, Mm. or maybe donating money. You know, you can see when people die, they'll say, you know, please leave a donation to maybe hospice or if they had a favorite place where they donated money. So you can do physical things like that. I'm even thinking of the woman who started Mothers Against Drunk Driving. Mm. So she used her anger. You know, there's a lot of energy in anger. And she used her anger that her child was killed by a drunk driver to start this Mothers Against Drunk Driving. So, you know, there's some active things you can do too. So even if you're not the person to go to a group session, or you're just not comfortable talking to your loved ones who have passed on, there's still so much you can do. But in Heidi's work, she doesn't care for just the families. She cares for those who are terminally ill as well. So I asked her about that type of grief. There's definitely a grief process for terminally ill patients. And it's actually called anticipatory grief, grief before, which also a lot of family members go through. So I try to name it for the patient and the family members. I had anticipatory grief. I didn't know I was having it. So it's helpful to actually realize that you can do a lot of grieving while the person is still living or if you are the person living Mm -hmm. because you're going from person who worked, who wore shoes, you know, who had a very busy schedule to, as my dad's saying, you know, someone who on their list is staying alive, maybe someone who's wearing a hospital gown. So the work we do is going from who I was to who I'm becoming. And that is looking at whatever is meaningful, was meaningful for them. It's very important for people to tell their story before they die. Oh, yeah. And I always tell caregivers in the hospital, whether it's a physician or social worker, if a patient starts telling you their life story, pull up a chair. Mm. Because it is a necessary part of the grief process for people to kind of, you know, sift through their lives, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And, you know, you can help reframe some of those. Sometimes just getting it out of our head can help reframe. Some people may be estranged from family members and... You can help, you know, talk about that. What's going on with that? Is it, you know, would you want to reach out to them? Again, it's anything to help to get to a peaceful place. Yeah. And and to just sift through the sadness of it, you know, pe- that I don't want to die. Yeah. And I had one patient who his sadness was leaving his granddaughter, mm. who he was very close to. 
And he was very sad about missing her high school graduation and her professional life and her wedding. And and we ended up, he wrote several cards to her and did a lot of videos on his phone, like graduation things. Yeah. And so there, you know, there's it's helping people prepare. But the other thing I say, Jason, for people who are in pain or struggling, it's okay to drop this body. It's okay because for me, our spirit and our mind is eternal. So that core essence of you will live forever. It's this body that you're going to be dropping. Now, that's a process. We don't start there. Right. Yeah. <laughs> but, you know, we do try to talk about reconciliation, what connects them with meaning. It can be religion. It can be spiritual. Maybe it's nature. You know, where do they find comfort? And also legacy. You know, what can they leave behind? Was it their work? Is it their children, their grandchildren? Is it yeah. – you know, what is it for them and help them connect to really feel connected because they're so out of control on making any decisions for themselves to help them reconnect in that way. And I'm guessing some people are just scared, you know, oh, just yeah. to, to pass over to the other side or, mm -hmm. or whatever it might be. And that's, again, goes back to the you are not alone. Yeah. Whether it's a chaplain, I will be with you, not necessarily me, but you're not alone. You know, we're all going to die. You know, whether it's today or in 40 years, he's not alone. This patient, he or she is, are not alone. Yeah. We're all going to be across the veil at some point. And yep. we have a lot to learn from people who are dying. One patient comes to mind who was... Very early in my career, Danny, and he was dying, and he had leukemia. He was not that much older than me, but he was estranged from his daughter, and he said he was going to beat it. He was going to live, and we just developed this nice relationship where he would just feel like no judgment zone, and he would tell me things, and mm -hmm. it was... It was really meaningful because, so Danny was in a motorcycle gang. He was like really not my usual patient, let's say. You could smell the smoke in the room. <laughs> like he had so many visitors from his motorcycle gang that he had to put a sign on the door that said two visitors at a time. Oh my gosh. You know, lots of leather jackets and tattoo. And at first it was a little scary actually going into his room. Uh, because it was kind of intimidating crowd in there. Yeah. But as I traveled with him, he had a great sense of humor, you know, and he really wanted to beat it and do something, uh, reconnect with his daughter. He was estranged from me, he had long hair, and he ended up getting an infection and never even getting to treatment. But I remember when he was dying, his hair... You know, I looked at him and his hair was kind of messy and he had a hospital gown on and he was just, you know, gr disgruntled looking. And I thought he would hate this. Uh -huh. So I had his friends put his favorite car racing. He had an Earnhardt shirt, Dale Earnhardt. Is it Earnhardt? Er Earnhardt. Earnhardt. Yeah. Dale Earnhardt shirt on that was 
powder blue that he loved. And I, we brushed his hair down and washed his face and his feet. And I put, you know, rubbed oil on his hands. And his daughter came and his daughter was there and held his hand at the end. And to me, it was like flashbacks of my dad and what he had at the end. And I thought, you know, we're all so the same. We're all, you know, we have all these exterior things that we do and likes and dislikes. But really, when it comes down to it, we want to be with our family. We want to be seen. We want to be loved. And so he died. I feel like a pretty peaceful death. And it was just very inspirational for me for moving forward yeah. and, and caring for people during that time. Wow. And so his daughter came back at the very end there. And we had worked and he had called her. Oh, yeah. He had connected with her, but she had not been there. She came when he was dying. Wow. Do you ever um, counsel anybody that does make it through and um, you know they, they do beat it? Hmm. I mean, actually, there was a patient that... This is the same patient who was very close to his granddaughter. The other thing he really wanted was to marry his long-term partner of 30-something years. So I actually officiated their wedding in the hospital, which was really poignant. All his like doctors came and the nurses, and he was going home to hospice. Um, they lived in Greensboro. And she would stay in touch with me. I am telling you, I'm not sure if he, the man's alive today, but he started getting better. He was going to have this chronic illness, but he actually got discharged from hospice because they have a six-month window, and his flare-ups got better, and he they bought a house in Greensboro <laughs> and sold his. So I can't tell you today if he's alive because I've kind of lost touch with them, but I kind of feel like she would have gotten in touch with me. But it really was an amazing turnaround from when he got married and went home and they bought this home and they bought it because they wanted to have a married home together. You can tell that Heidi loves her job, but sometimes it has to be pretty traumatic for her as well. So I asked her what the hardest part of her job is. Meeting with people one-on-one -on -one is a really great part of my job. I think sometimes being called to traumatic things and having staff care, and almost being like pummeled with traumatic, devastating events that can happen because we are, I'm on part of a team that gets called to unexpected traumatic events. That's what gets heavy. And it's that's when I need to step back and just have a little levity, you yeah. know, just like have a little break in the action. As you know, Jason, I also officiate weddings. And that is brings me a lot of joy. And the cool thing about it, too, is that it's another very intimate time to be with people. And so it's like two sides of the same coin, the grief and the joy. But it's so much fun to, you know, be with these couples at the happiest time of their life and get to celebrate with them. So that really has been one way that I can kind of leave the hospital and remember, oh, right, happy things happen too in life. Yes. <laughs> Joyful celebrations happen. So yes, I'm uh, grateful to be able to do that as well. 
I would just like to reach out and let people who are listening who may be grieving and just feeling like there's no hope and you're not going to feel better and this is just the way it is for the rest of your life, to stay open that it's not. And actually your biggest, saddest event in life, which certainly can be the, the loss of a close loved one can also be the most powerful transformation for you. You know, it's almost like your life can take on a whole new meaning. You can go in a whole new direction. You can honor your loved one. It's a process, but I would encourage to reach out and maybe even through Renaissance, finding a group or someone to talk to, or someone to help you through it, because it can be very lonely. And the hardest part I found is showing up. Mm. Like once you show up, like a lot of things in life, right? Yeah. Once you show up and get connected, you can transform your life and have new new openings. And I, you know, I just did a vision board retreat this past Saturday, and one woman was grieving the loss of her adult daughter. This woman is 71. No, this woman was 78. She came to a vision board workshop because she said, is the rest of my life going to be grieving my daughter? And she had a picture of her daughter on her board. And she felt so much healing from doing that board and inspired to move forward in helping people in ways that her daughter had died, yeah. you know, which was colon cancer. You know, not that she's going to run out today, but she got a tweak of hope. And she also connected with nine other women, you know, who were struggling with other things in life. So I think that's a big piece of it is connection. Well, we're all looking for a connection, especially in the tougher times in life. And as a hospital chaplain and grief counselor, that's exactly what Heidi provides. That connection and support in grief and how to live when so much has changed. Thank you, Heidi, for coming on the Beyond the Obituary podcast from Renaissance Funeral Home. If you'd like to get in touch with Heidi, you can email her at heidi.gessner at unchealth.unc.edu. And if you're interested in attending her upcoming retreat in August, it's called Create Your Life Vision Board, and I'll put all this information in the show notes. If you like the show, be sure to subscribe, rate, review, or share on social media. That would mean a lot to us and help keep this podcast growing. This show was edited and produced by me, Jason Gillikin, for Happy Hippo Digital. From Renaissance Funeral Home in Raleigh, North Carolina, thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time on Beyond the Obituary.